Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is Michelle Price here coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas today, where we are celebrating 10 years here on Breakthrough Radio of talking about how to master the inner as well as the outer game of business. And that means that we're exploring internal and external strategies that are going to help you perform better. You know, it's the first Monday of the month, and that's when we get to hear a breakthrough tip You know, our tip is the first thing at the top of the show where you can go take action on that information right now. Our featured spot today is with Michael Gale, the co-author of Digital Helix, transforming your organization's DNA to to thrive in the digital age. Our featured interview is a 30 to 35-minute conversation that's a nice deep dive into the topic of the day. It allows you to gain a much better understanding, level of knowledge, and application for your business. Then we wrap up this Monday with our Breakthrough Bite with Jeff Shuey, who talks about the intersection between people and technology. The Breakthrough Bite is a 10-minute segment that's more than our tip and not as deep as our feature, meeting all the learning styles of our listeners. I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio, and if it is your first visit, please thank the person who told you about us. Here's the scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction. That's why you only need to write down one URL today. It's www.thebreakthroughradio.com. You know, every week you have access to a blog post that gives you the frame for the conversation. Any or everything that we talk about today, something we may reference to as a resource, we link to it there. Whether it's how to reach Michael, Jeff, or myself, make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us. Do more than follow. Reach out. Truly connect. Ask us a question. Engage us in conversation. And of course, when it makes sense for your business, hire us. Well, here is our breakthrough tip for February. First, we've got a question for you. What are you mastering? You know, this morning I wrote a post on Facebook about the human behaviors I was observing while temporarily driving for Lyft and Uber. You know, definitely gaining content to use in my leadership keynotes and meeting some interesting business people in the process. You know, a friend of mine that you've heard from here on Breakthrough Radio, Kelsey Rudder, suggested a book, Seeking Wisdom. And when I read the intro, I knew it was to share a part of that intro with you today as our breakthrough tip. So here's how it starts. A man who has committed a mistake and doesn't correct it is committing another mistake. That's by Confucius, a Chinese thinker in the 6th to 5th century B.C., So why do we behave like we do? You know, American writer Mark Twain once wrote, the character of the human race never changes. It's permanent. Why is that so? What do we want out of life? 
to be healthy, happy with our families, in our work. Well, what interferes with this? Isn't it often emotions like fear, anger, worry, disappointment, stress, and sadness caused by problems, mistakes, losses, or unreal expectations? Maybe we misjudge people, situations, the time, or some investment. We choose the wrong occupation, spouse, investment, or place to live. Why? You know, the book Seeking Wisdom is about searching for wisdom. It is in the spirit of Charlie Munger, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, Inc., who says, all I want to know is where am I going to die so I'll never go there. (laughs) You know, there are roads that lead to unhappiness, and an understanding of how and why we can die should help us avoid them. This book focuses on how our thoughts are influenced, why we make misjudgments, and tools to improving our thinking. If we understand what influences us, we might avoid certain traps and understand why others act like they do. And if we learn and understand what works and what doesn't work, and find some framework for reasoning, we'll make better judgments. You know, we can't eliminate mistakes, but we can prevent those that really hurt us. So how do we achieve wisdom? You know, it's hard to improve ourselves simply by looking at our own mistakes. The best way to learn what, how, And why things work is to learn from others. Charlie Munger says, I believe in the discipline of mastering the best that other people have figured out. I don't believe in just sitting down and trying to dream it up yourself. Nobody's that smart. You know, the 16th century essayist, Michel de Mouchon, said, Anyone who wishes to be cured of ignorance must first admit to it. My quest for wisdom originates partly around making mistakes myself and observing those of others, but also from the philosophy of Charles Munger, a man whose simplicity and clarity of thought is unequal to anything I've seen. What especially influenced me Charlie Munger referred to Charles Darwin as one of the best thinkers who ever lived. Darwin's lessons is that even people who aren't geniuses can outthink the rest of kind if they develop certain thinking habits. So I'm going to go back to that question we originally asked you at the beginning of this breakthrough tip. What are you mastering right now? And where do you want to drive results for yourself? Are you going in the right direction? (laughs) If not, switch gears now. Well, you know, in our last episode, we talked with Mike Lewis, the author of When to Jump. Now, a big company that has learned the value of timing their jumps is Ford. 
how will you follow Ford's lead and be more strategic in how you create value for your customers? Expectations have changed, and that means you need to find new ways to change with them. One of those changes is the game of buying for businesses, no matter what industry you sit. It's why having a buyer journey map has become mandatory if you want to succeed and grow. And this is exactly what Growth Hacking CMO does with their clients when they're approached and ask for help to grow business and your revenues. You know, Growth Hacking CMO are masters at crafting that roadmap and then showing clients how to structure their execution with precision. Defining what's important to customers today and using analytics to see how customers are making their buying decisions is a savvy way to prepare for their future needs and to stay relevant. And when you know what's valuable to your customer, you can use that to capture their attention and have it be welcomed. Whether you have 10 or 10,000 customers, your buyer journey map saves you time, money, and headaches. It's your sweet spot in business now, one that can help you generate profits and gain traction over your competitors. So connect with growthhackingcmo.com and find out how they can help you do that in 2018. You know, before we start our featured interview, Remember, we appreciate it when you share today's show by going to www.thebreakthroughradio.com. Well, Michael Gill founded Strategic Oxygen in 2001, which was widely seen as one of the technology industry's primary data tool sets for marketers used by over 20 brands and used to model over $4 billion in marketing and sales investments. The company was sold to Monitor Group, where he was a group partner from 2006 to 2010. And in 2011, he became a partner at PulsePoint Group, a digital consulting company, which was acquired by ICF in 2015. Michael has also served as the chief web officer and GM at Micron Technology and was the vice president of worldwide brand research at IntelliQuest. So please join me as we welcome Michael Gale to Breakthrough Radio today. How are you doing today, Michael? Great. A marvelous uh, interview or discussion about Charlie Munger, incredible human being. You know, and it's so funny because I'm going to ask you uh, a question at the very end of our interview today, uh, and I, I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to tell you, don't answer Charlie Munger. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't. Like, off the list, but he's a remarkable human being because I think he, uh, his capacity to cut through noise and understand signal is, I think, one of the key learnings about career and business development. We, we tend to be too obsessed with extremes, extremely you know, clever, extremely large, but that's not actually the history of how organizations or individuals are actually successful. So it's inc- very good common yeah. sense advice. Well, you know, I wanted to compliment you because both you and Chris made the best use of inside of a book cover I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're hoping people will not steal the book cover at Barnes & Noble, but actually buy the whole book. But we wanted to give people a, a, a mechanism to navigate. So we took the seven components from the 230 pages and said, look, if you just read the inside cover, let's make it a useful placemat for you on a daily basis. Well, and I find that a lot of times what is really, really helpful when you're reading a book, after you've read a book, and you're trying to put the 
content into action and learn it, it helps to have a visual like that to remind you of, you know, the the framework of what you're trying to do. So that was just brilliant. <laughs> cool. Well, the users told us. People said, we want to help. This is difficult. Make it easier. So that's, other than something you could touch and change shape, that's about as easy as we could make it with paper. So one of the questions I want to ask you, and I'm I'm going to say I'm I'm, I'm not being uh, uh, difficult or, or or hard intentionally, but after listening to a hard. lot of Come people on, okay. talk, <laughs> after after interviewing and talking to people for ten years about digital, <laughs> would make the digital helix really that much different than what everybody else has been telling us? No, I think that's a great question. So, And I'll, I'll use a metaphor to start with. I think reality is transparently obvious to all of us, but finding a trigger that allows you to actualize how to do something is very difficult. Think of it like, like losing weight after Christmas. We all know we've all probably indulged in, in too much or the bad composition of food, and we all make these amazingly good January sort of promises, but the reality is they all miserably fail very quickly because at the very heart of the challenge is a desire to really understand what it takes to trigger different behavior. So, you know, every organization you ever speak to will say we do digital, whether it's a website or it's a CRM. Most organizations recognize that their businesses have to sort of migrate to a truly digital, real-time process. But the fundamental challenge is that 84% of these organizations miserably fail. So they either digitally wrap, you know, they cut out candy, or they say, I'm going to not have alcohol and meat on a Fridays. And only about 16% fundamentally get it right. And they get it right, much like in dieting, because they get to a DNA level of understanding what needs to change fundamentally to get the different results that, you know, a digital business promises you. We all want to be like Amazon or Google or any of these digital first giants, but there's a, there's a fundamentally different DNA they have that I think is taken us all a long time to realize you can't just make a January vow and make it successful. So what the book really is, is it's like Watson's Double Helix, and you know DNA was moderately well understood for decades before. Someone had to put it into a shape, a pattern, a form that said, if you really want to be the beneficiary of this, these are the seven things in our case you have to do differently. So I don't think it reveals anything unique in you, just like Weight Watchers, but it really does show you how to do it in a way that nobody's managed to sort of nail, much like those guys sat in a pub in Cambridge and took a beer mat and sort of turned into spirals. This book is designed to take the obvious but painful truths and put them in a practical framework that says this is how to be digital at your core, not just have email or website, but truly function as a digital company. And that's really where the difference in the book is. Well, I love how you talked about the painful part because one of the things that I've noticed over the time that we have talked about how to master both the, both the internal and external strategies of business is that a lot of people spend so much time avoiding doing the hard work, pulling back all the layers, doing what I call the deep work, and then you've disidentified it as being the DNA, that, you know, it reminds me of those 
of us who have had teenagers, so all you <laughs> listeners who ever had a teenager, or you have to go back to when you were a teenager, when we spent more time arguing for why we didn't want to do something than the time it took to complete it. I'd argue that's life. I'm not sure it necessarily. Yeah, and the thing about digital that people sh- that sh- people should be aware, and I think you know, we had an odd discussion when we started the book three years ago, where we pushing this far enough ahead. So we interviewed a very interesting guy called Michael Schrag at MIT, who I think is one of the smartest forward thinkers we interviewed, and he said, guys, you should be thinking really, really hard about the replacement of humans with automation and AI. We're like, yeah, we'll get there. Well, he was more right than we were. I think the speed of this stuff is so fast, much like adolescence, you get this tiny window to get this right, and if you can't get it right in this time frame we're talking now, you could be left laps, leagues, miles behind competition, because what we've assumed to be the drivers for success are fundamentally changing so radically, you can't take you know, planning from last year and assume it's relevant to the end of next year. Even your assumptions about the world um, have changed. We do a test sometimes when we're live, when we ask people how many of them have electric cars. Maybe you know, 10 and 100 put their hand up. Then you say, right, you're going to buy a car in four years' time. People put their hand up and say, right, what percent of you are going to seriously consider electric cars? And it's 60% of an audience. I think that fundamentally these shifts are so radical and fast, you've got to be prepared to handle the uncomfortable with a framework. Otherwise, the world's going to just, I think, just go past you very quickly. Well, one of the things that you shared, and I actually used it in a tweet, yet I wonder how many times people don't truly think in this direction. They may say they do, but they aren't taking actions to follow up with the question. That is that there's 55%, you said 55% of Fortune leaders fear the power of digital startups. You know, that digital transformation is essential defense against competition from new digital organizations. Now, maybe it's just because, I'm going to throw this out there, (laughs) that I'm so involved in the startup world that I see things that other people don't see. But at some point, you have to wonder when people say that this is something they're concerned with, why the hell aren't they actually taking smarter and harder actions toward it not being something that's going to totally throw them out of business? I think it's like weight loss, and I I use it because of hundreds of years of these January promises. I think often it takes pain to induce change. It takes systemic and deep pain to really shock industries into change. You look at this in retail. I mean, retail has been in a free-fall physical retail for a while, but there are some retail stores, Zara, H&M, that have been extraordinarily good because they've they've changed or recalibrated key components of their supply chain, or the way they handle customers that keeps them in a very profitable position. And I think the problem is most executives are so locked into daily, weekly, quarterly results, they can't see the degradation in front of them. I mean, one of the sections of the book is a trend model. This is start thinking about trends as blips or as sort of you know mainstream, but stop just waiting for the trend to happen. I think there's a lack of looking to the near horizon and many CEOs try and look way, way out in the future, say, we'll get there, when in reality, strategy in a digital world has to be one step ahead. Google, Amazon, Uber, Netflix, all these organizations are extraordinarily good at not trying to overlook through the horizon, 
but look what it takes to, to work and navigate in a changing world. And that's the essence of a startup, this capacity to be careful in direction, but just navigate slightly left or slightly right, is that level of daily diligence that many organizations at the large level get so locked into process and administration they can't do. And you know, it's interesting, Michael, because a lot of times some of the brilliant minds that we've had an opportunity to put in the chair here at Startup Growing uh, for our local chapter in Houston have been inside of those large organizations, and now they're outside running their own startups. And they will say things to us when we talk about these topics that, you know, large organizations are like big ships. They just can't turn like a startup. The culture is mm -hmm. totally different. It will never be able to adapt like a startup. So maybe the, maybe we're asking the wrong questions again. Maybe instead of asking big companies, why aren't you doing this, we should be asking, when are you actually going to break up into enough smaller entities in order to be truly agile and then learn how to how to work together and collaborate with a totally different DNA structure that allows you to have both the power of a large entity and the velocity of a startup. And that's the GE issue right now. I can imagine that's the question that the board at GE are asking to their management is are we too large to succeed? It's the Karitsu model in Japan gone bad. Um, I think really big organizations can be incredibly successful, but they have to make some fundamental shift. I look at Microsoft, you know, moving to a cloud-based sales model and delivery model was, you know, thought of as fairly small when they did it, but remarkable because the discipline they took to make that movement was key. I think you look at the car industry and it's scrambled to have electrical, you know, combination car elements or the aviation industry or the other forms of transportation. I think you can see some radical shifts. I mean, I've seen in hotel chains now room service being delivered by robots, not humans. I think we're starting to see it because the ability to do it is much easier than ever before. It's just it's your imagination, frankly, which is your biggest restrainer, and not understanding your digital DNA means you start falling over. Again, it's like dieting. If you have an issue about chocolate or carbs, You've got to manage those things. And I think the reality is most CEOs find it difficult to look inside themselves and say, where are we unique? What does our DNA really look like in a digital world? You know, what are liabilities that are maybe now assets? So customer service could now be a huge asset when it was a liability. They have to get out of their comfort zones. And I think that's where they fail. They just aren't prepared to get uncomfortable because the daily stresses of running a really big, complex organization can really just grind on anybody. Mm. They definitely can grind on you. And, and one of the things that I noticed that more people are starting to have what I call out loud conversations instead of internal conversations is around the mindset and the role that it plays in either success or failure, um, which, you know, that makes me really happy because we've been talking about this for a really long time. When Even when people told me, there's no way you're going to create a radio show around talking about mindset as well as tools, techniques, and strategies. And everything inside of my gut told me I was on target, but it took a really long time for people to see it in its entirety. And, of course, now it's not considered um, avant-garde or that forward-thinking <laughs> and it just well, amazes it me how people's no, memory is so convenient. 
<laughs> but you're still doing it. I mean, the reality in, in a digital environment, digital technology makes everything possible. So you're limited by your capacity for imagination and your capacity to reorder your mindset how to do things differently. Look, anybody, we have a constant challenge when organizations say, yeah, we're a nine-to-five organization. We're like, you can't be like that anymore. It doesn't mean you work people 24 by 7, but being constantly available on and off is where the world works about. You don't always have to fill people's work days encouraging to be creative. So the mindset change needs to start at the top. It's why we talk about you know executives becoming digital explorers. You can't mandate change in an organization if you're not prepared to go through it, which is a complete mindset discussion at its best anyway. So you, you were completely so right. Have, okay. What have you learned then, Michael, in working with some of the leaders who've been willing to raise their hand and go, all right, we get it. We believe you. We need to make these changes. What have you noticed has been part of their journey that could maybe illuminate some thinking for our listeners to help kind of, as you said earlier, trigger their desire and their want to facilitate those changes? So let's imagine you're working in a larger organization, or actually you're a startup servicing a large organization. You've got to find a moment around digital that is really imperative to the organization, but you can experiment with and deliver completeness. It's this capacity to experiment and deliver completeness that's vital to prove a point. And I think that if you're working with, let's say, a VP of sales or marketing or operations or, or sort of you know, service level, really understand the moments these sort of intersections, not so much the journeys, but the moments, and how you can radically shift them fast. Real innovation, there's a piece we wrote in Forbes last month, is about this ability to get innovative change in lots of areas, CapEx, OpEx, SG&A at the same time. Don't incrementalize this. Find something because digital delivers this amazing magic when it all connects. Things happen really quickly. So I think find the right engagement, find the right project that you know you can make a difference with because that difference is going to be what will help you get wider success across the organization. And spend time on alternative strategy development, spend time on new metrics, don't do new things, measuring them in old ways. And I think one of the things we found with the most successful organizations like USAA and even Hallmark is they measured digital success in digital ways. They didn't just measure it with old metrics. So they were not incrementalist. They found things that could do multiple dimensions at the same time, and they measured them differently. If you can use those three tests, you will find a successful place to land and start to show real success. Well, that perfectly leads into what I wanted to ask you next, then, Michael, and that is can you give us a real-life example of, of someone that you've seen do this well, who's been able to create that digital experience, but also they're having to learn new ways to measure things. It's not like someone's going to come along and go, here's how you're going to transform stuff. I mean, you know, you have a general <laughs> concept, an idea, or a strategy, but until they do the work, some of that does not show up. And I think that's what I notice really scares people. They're not sure of everything they need to do. And I'm like, you're not going to know everything. Because when you start doing it, then things show up as answers. Yeah, perfectly put. So digital has an interesting paradox. 
Anything you do with technology, we have historically believed is absolute. It's right, it's wrong, it's immediate. Well, when you're interacting events, humans and technology, there's lots of stuff we've yet to discover. So I think one of the key areas of doing this is actually in customer service um, for two reasons. One is that customers constantly interact, extraordinarily personally in the sort of nature of what it is. And, you know, this is relatively high volume. And, in fact, there's a failure generally in organizations to leverage customer service information for product design, pricing, delivery, marketing, packaging, because we just want to isolate things out. So I think organizations like USAA have done an amazing job of using daily customer interaction to really inform other parts of the organization, marketing, product delivery, everything else about insights that matter. They may change those dashboards every week because they may go, you know, it's not relevant what we found last week, two weeks going forward, but they're using it as a constant stream and theme of information to change the way the organization thinks and to make it so close to the customer, so insightful about the customer that they can almost function in real time. Hallmark has done the same with its card business because it used to just distribute cards out to stores. Now it has very specific tracking systems in stores that give very high-frequent feedback about what's working and what isn't. And I think the thing with the digital world is you can't leave it out there and wait. You have to take it out there, take it in, and interact on a very common, frequent basis. You've got to roll your sleeves up and really get in the weeds. And I think customer service is the number one place to do it because it can have, it has so many tentacles to other parts of the organization. I love it. Thank you for that. Hopefully that will be encouraging and as well as challenge people to just start taking some smarter actions. Don't feel like you're going to have to craft this perfect strategy. I know that really frustrates clients when they come to me and they ask for help, and I'm like, you know what? We're going to do as much as we can, but somewhere, whatever I have to do to help you to learn how to be in real time moment, that's going to serve you so well in business now and put you way ahead of your competitors. It truly is a very, very different way of thinking. Yeah, in fact, the best analogy we were given is it's no longer about being the head coach. It's about being a player. And, in fact, if you can't take that migration from the sideline to the field, it's going to be very difficult for organizations and leaders to win. You know, I think gone are the days of walnut-encrusted executive offices, and you've got to walk, you've got to breathe, you've got to live the job with your teams, with your employees. And I think that's almost re-entrepreneurizing a corporation to get back to its roots. And I think if you can get back to those sort of the original DNA and you can digitize it, you can be successful. But it doesn't come with, you know, complex executive briefings. It comes with getting in the action. Mm. That's too funny because guess what I was about to ask you. <laughs> I was going to ask you how how um, how are you seeing executives really playing a very different kind of game in this space? <laughs> it's a brilliant, like brilliant ESP. It's answers. <laughs> it's, I mean, we all want to be Jeff Bezos. We all want to be the guys at Google because they just get into the action. I mean, they absolutely get in there. So it doesn't mean they're right, doesn't mean they're wrong, but their capacity to get in and have action and not live on dashboards, not live on reports, not live on PowerPoint. I mean, Amazon has a tight rule that every, all reporting is done in Word documents. Construct complete Word documents in either one, three or six pages, because if you can't put it into one, three or six pages, it doesn't matter how many slides you have. 
I think the execs that really are going to succeed are those prepared to roll their sleeves up. And I don't think it's an age issue or an education issue. It's just your own determinate DNA, does it? Get, you can get entrepreneurial inside a fortune organization as a leader with a digital environment because installation of anything digital is so super easy. So as a learning platform, it's absolutely phenomenal. So those that win, explore. That's why we talked about it in the book. Executives as, executives as digital explorers should be the number one question any consultant or, frankly, a board asks at CEO. Board to say to the CEO, are you a digital explorer? Because if they're not, very difficult to be successful in a world evolving this rapidly and in directions we just don't know about yet. Well, you know, you bring up a really good point, Michael, that I wonder when you stop and think about uh, leadership today and while they may recognize and see that things are changing and directions they're going, it if they've never been an entrepreneur, if they've always been leading a large organization, are they really who we need in charge for this next phase of growth? And how are companies, especially large companies, looking to the entrepreneurial world and how to work with entrepreneurs instead of still kind of, you know, shaking their finger at them like, well, you just don't <laughs> understand us. Well, I think it's a choice. I think you've got a choice of four directions. One is you you repeat history and hope that something vibrates differently, um, or you actually start experimenting yourself to become uncomfortable in your historical patterns of behavior and start exploring. Thirdly, you know, you can actually engineer experiments internally and learn from those experiments. I mean, GE has done some of that. Other organizations have, but induce an experimental culture in some places as a sort of natural transit way to learn. And the fourth thing is just, you know, to close your eyes and fall off the side of the boardroom and just try it. Because I think when people see initial success, they actually get excited. The problem often is we've people try and massively over-engineer because they haven't spent the time to understand the DNA of their organization. So they just hope that an external consultant can force it in. And if you're going to really digitally transform your organization, read this you know, or any other book because educating yourself about what it takes is a big deal. I mean, this is the sort of number one selling book on the subject last year, and there's about you know, nearly $2 trillion has been spent on this. So if you can't spend three or four hours reading something, it'd be unfair to ask your organization to invest hundreds of thousands of hours to try and experiment with it. So try and shake your own precepts, try experiments. So something just happened. I was hearing you talking and now you're gone. Um, oh, sorry. And I am going to open a different um, browser to see if maybe it has to do with uh, what's going on, hopefully not, <clears throat> on our dashboard. But give me one second to maneuver here as I'm trying to do this. Oh, there we are. So you're back. So I have no idea what caused that, but now I can hear you. It's well, the internet. Too... <laughs> oh, God, I swear. Sometimes I just want to scream. <laughs> we have to live in this, we have to live in this te- technology-driven world. We're living real time. We're alive, and yet... You can't fix it live. <laughs> I know. Well, that's, that's the problem of space, isn't it? We become, when we used to send telexes to each other, it was all nice and gentle and smooth. Now it, it gets tested every moment. <laughs> no kidding. So there's two more questions I want to ask Yes, you. of course. When we're looking at the speed of change, 
what is your opinion of the, the, the thing that you think is really going to break next? And I ask that because we talk about everything here on Breakthrough Radio. As a matter of fact, the person coming behind you is going to be talking about AI and business. So what do you personally think is going to be the thing that is going to break next? And when I say break next, I mean like really take off like a horse right out of the gate. So I think there are, so I think there are two things, and I think that they actually live together. Uh, and I think it's important because every function should ask themselves one question. Question number one is, what can I automate in my function in order to free up my human capital to be fundamentally better versions of themselves? And it's a really important issue because much like the Industrial Revolution where you know, we're looking at silk manufacturing or, or stockings, this is a much deeper thing that customers can manage themselves in ways that are far better than you know, the way systems or humans can because they're, just, they're better at self-actualization. So... Item one is what can you genuinely automate so that people can self-manage in a, in a realistic way? I think the second issue, and we talk about this in themes and streams in the book, AI has the potential to open up and free remarkable creative idea making within organizations because insights are coming from multiple dimensions now, not just one, and it's the collision of those moments that could offer organizations incredible insight. Could you imagine if you're a brand and you know the exact moment and the exact combinations where someone has a nine-to-one preference for your organization compared to somebody else. That's really what we care about. AI, if used properly, and automation, if it sits correctly in the creative mindset, are, I think, like inventing steamships around sailing ships. They could completely change the way we work. But you can't just put the stuff in place without really thinking through process, and vision about how you do it. And I think that those are the two most likely breakthrough areas because like a steamship, you can have a small steamship or a huge steamship. It doesn't require um, incredibly large investments to get started, but the more you get into it, the more it's going to change your systems. And I think we're dealing with you know, the true nature of a world where there are 7.2 billion markets. Every customer is their own market. Every organization is their own market. And that, so I think that segmentation will disappear because just let people self-actualize in your environment, they'll be able to do a much better job than you can. And that could be really revolutionary for large organizations trying to make this transition to a digitally transforming world because they have this enormous legacy of customers, this enormous legacy of experiences. They just need to be able to unleash that stuff in a way that gives them an advantage. Mm, I'm looking forward to it. So there's a signature question, Michael, we ask all the guests who come on Breakthrough Radio. Uh, and I find that when I share a little bit about how it came about, people automatically get get it. And it's yeah, funny cool. because, you know, it was one of those things a Saturday afternoon, I'm watching Star Trek rerun, and Spock's doing his whole mind melt thing, and I know you've never done this. I screamed at the TV and I said, I don't care about everything that's happened in his entire life. But if you could explain to me why he made that choice and that decision, I'm game. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, damn, that's actually really good, girl. <laughs> what if instead of understanding an in, you know, a person's entire life, we could just extract how they made their choices and their decisions and learn from that? So if you could do that, Michael, with anybody, Anybody, whether it's someone from the past, the present, or the future, who would you want to do it with? I, that is an amazing question. Um, 
I think a real human being to me would probably be Winston Churchill, a highly flawed human being um, who recognized his moment when it happened to make a huge difference. And I think we have so much noise in our lives, sometimes working out from somebody when they knew it was the right moment to do something, and they've had a history of flaws before, is I think one of those really interesting conversations. We're really blessed to live in this country doing what we all do, you know, economically and socially. I think there's a, he really understood those moments in, in a way that is so crisp and transparent that we could all handle that crispness and transparency about our own moments that matter. Mm. You know, I've heard people say Churchill before, but they've never put it that way. So thank you for sharing that with us. I really appreciate it. Of course. It's a great question. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm looking forward to is seeing what kind of questions we get after people actually go out and read the Digital Helix, because a lot of times that not only gives us great uh, data and information on who we need to have on next, but it helps us just keep this our finger on the pulse of where people are thinking and what they're doing. And so I'm looking forward to to them going out, grabbing a copy, and giving us that feedback. So thank you for sharing no with us today. No, it was great interview. And it was incredible look- fun, so best of luck. You bet. Take care, Mike. Take care. Bye. So one of the things that you guys have done a really great job of is you've gone out You've put stuff into work that we've talked about, and then you've given us really great feedback on that. And for those of you who would like to continue to do that, please keep emailing us at thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. Again, that's thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. And I'm going to ask you a really quick question as we shift over into talking to Jeff Shuey. Have you visited and participated in Startup Grind yet? That silence was the guilt part. Because <laughs> if you have not, just do it. Get to the point. Go do it. No matter what's happening, whether it's in your city or your country, you are going to find the people who go to Startup Grind are the people that are really looking at what do we need to do differently? What do we need to do to be a success now, where we are, with all the things we're learning? You can also meet me and some of my team at Startup Grind Global because we're going to be there next next week. It actually starts Tuesday, the 13th. So Tuesday and Wednesday, you could go out to Startup Grind Global in California, and we could finally meet face-to-face. But no matter what, make sure you do at least connect with your local chapter. Okay, well, it is time for us to shift over into talking to Jeff Chewy about AI in business. And boy, I could not have picked line up and serve you that great ball so that you can talk about your topic. How was that, Jeff? <laughs> that was great. That was perfect. It, uh, he, he, Michael mentioned a few things that fit right in. Well, I am going to do what I typically do. I'm going to mute myself as long as you give me at least two minutes at the end of the hour. I can close the show out. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us this February February kickoff event, or at least kickoffs, I guess, for uh, for this month. This month I want to talk about artificial artificial intelligence in business and how it is in business. 
Um, for those that have seen the framing post, I'm going to go through some of those points. I'm going to add a couple other elements that uh, I usually do, including the pros and cons and the ROIs. The bottom line of artificial intelligence is it's not new. So a lot of times these topics I pick, they're not always very new. I mean, AI has been around for certainly from science fiction perspective for a very long time. Um, but from a practical reality perspective, it's been talked about for 60 plus years, maybe a little bit more than that. And it's always been sense of a fanciful dream. And the good news is with the advances in technology, it's changing fast. So I'm going to start off by saying one thing that's pretty important, at least I think it is, and that I, I believe in a couple of senses, artificial intelligence means jobs. There are going to be jobs that are created and there will be some that will go away. And Gartner had a quote from, I saw it first time probably in November or December of last year, but it's saying by 2020, which is now only about two years away, artificial intelligence will create about 2.3 million jobs while taking away about 1.8 million. And so it's a net gain of 500,000. And now that math is pretty simple to do. The reality is people do need to make steps and take steps to be ready. And as I talked about last month, I talked about mechatronics as a potential type of job, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But the, the net net of what AI is it, in and of itself is it's a technology that's really composed of a bunch of different elements. And I talked about this in the framing post. So you have sensors, you have robotics, you have machine learning at the core of it, but there's also other elements like net NLP or natural language processing. And my sort of big picture, which I'll put in the blog post after this, it's all the graphic is, is ready to go. And for lack of a better term, I called it robots, roads, and the real world. And in a, in a sense, what it starts with is you start with, it could be a robot that has a sensor. It could be a road or, or something on the road, a retailer, uh, automobile itself, uh, food, uh, someplace that's selling food. And they have a sensor that basically might be something as simple as and maybe change the oil, or it might be something as interesting as your favorite uh, book author is signing a book in this town. So there's a sensor that basically captures some information, and it might be from real-time sensors on an automobile, for example, or more from the web or from other places where it gathers data. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then machine learning picks up on that and figures out what it's trying to do, or what it tries, tries to make some sense out of that. And then AI has, I don't know if I'd say it's the, the pinnacle of that pyramid, but for, for lack of a better term, I'll say it's the pinnacle there that tries to make sense of all of it in a way to present it to the end user. Within that, you also have computer vision. So you might have like on uh, uh, AEVs, autonomous electric vehicles, you have LIDAR or will have LIDAR where it senses what's around there, but also can, things that can read road signs or read other information. And you also have natural language processing, like with chatbots with Alexa and Siri, which arguably are not AI. For those that don't know, they're fairly programmatic, meaning they know, yes, they can search things, but really they, they have a fairly limited dictionary or vocabulary of what they can do. So I'm not going to put them in the AI category, but the point is within the artificial intelligence category, there are sensors and robotics and machine learning at the core, and that provides access to information, and that's massive amounts of information. So like I mentioned in the framing post, you have traffic cameras that are monitoring both video feeds and static feeds. Could be for accidents, could be for traffic, could be for, could be for weather conditions, it could be for a lot of stuff. And obviously there are millions of traffic devices out there all around the world 
Um, similarly, with, within various factories, there are robots that do everything from painting to assembly. More new to the scene are AEVs, or autonomous electric vehicles. Obviously, generally, they're not completely autonomous yet, even though some places in Arizona are starting to go live with uh, autonomous. I think there's a test going on this month uh, in a small scale for an AEV or a, a, a fleet of AEVs that are going to be, I'll say, doing their jobs. And so in a sense, those are jobs that are going away. So I talked about that before. So yes, there will be uh, taxi cab drivers and truck drivers and manufacturing roles that go away and even retailers. If you've been to a McDonald's in the past six months or so, you may have noticed that they have, uh, some of them at least, have devices when you walk in. They have, you, you basically pick and choose what you want and you pay and a few moments later you walk over and pick up your food and that kind of stuff is going to change the way that type of retail works but a critical element that i usually talk about in the in the cons or at least the risk aspects are i i pii is personally identifiable information people know what that is and i don't know if i made these terms up but i'm going to take credit for them i also talked about cii and gii so corporate identifiable information and government identifiable information. One of the challenges that we have, and this is not necessarily related to jobs, but it, but it could certainly impact whether we get hired or, or don't stay in roles, is what information a company may or may not want to share about us or maybe about their own processes. And again, that's uh, another side element where things like cryptocurrencies can come in, but I'll come back to that in a few minutes. Another one is from a government aspect. So if I'm driving on a, a, a real-world example that I just thought of the other day was what information does a city or state have the need or the responsibility to disclose versus what they should keep? And it, it's from something as simple as a traffic accident. So if I get into an accident in my local town, does the city have the right to capture that information. And by the way, this came from an article, uh, they were talking about uh, autonomous cars and a police department said, wow, this is great. We'll be able to see all the LIDAR data that, see, that shows us exactly what happened in the accident. So in theory, there would be no human component, there might be some, but really there's a machine component and a human component to interpret what they saw, quote unquote, saw in the accident. And that's what prompted that question for GII, how much information should it share? From an artificial intelligence standpoint and from a sensor standpoint and from a machine learning standpoint, it's going to gather that information. The question is from a, con, from a, a, a negative aspect, potential negative aspect of how much of that could it or should it share. And that old adage of, well, if you have nothing to hide, why would you be, why would you be worried about it? Well, people do. I, I still think that people do worry about their private information, whether it's me on the street or something else. And AI can monitor and manage that information based on my preferences. And that's, those are things that can be both dynamic, meaning happen in real time, and programmatic. But one thing I mentioned in the framing post is typically AI has been, for the most part, linear with some branches, meaning if, if, then, else, or case select type statements. Those rules need to be not just dynamic, but they need to be flexible for the situation. And, and I, I think one of the things that Michael Gale just sort of alluded to is what he asked about what can I automate so people can basically maximize their, their time. In a, in a similar sense, this is where AI, AI comes in. If I can automate it, and I do talk about it later, that anything that can be automated will be automated in the sense that automating tasks can be done, they should be, 
but there should also be some guidance and rules around that. And as I mentioned in the framing post, I don't mean in a terminator sense. I don't expect that to happen anytime in the near future, even though I absolutely do think the next war will have a heavy robot involvement, but that's not necessarily AI driven. But what needs to be built in is so that too much information isn't shared and or the right information is shared. So ultimately what's gonna happen, at least from my perspective with artificial intelligence is as computing becomes significantly faster with quantum computing, it's gonna change everything because there, it will be possible to get real-time data uh, about almost anything you can imagine, certainly how airplanes are flying in the air and trains are on the ground and air, air travel, as most people probably know, is quite safe. Train travel lately seems to be a little more sketchy based on the two train crashes we've had in the last couple of days, at least in the U.S. But AI and machine learning and sensors can help with all that, and certainly it should. But what's going to happen, and I do say it's, it is going to change the way people work, so I do think it's going to change how people find jobs and keep, jo keep jobs. So will artificial intelligence take jobs? Absolutely. People can work together to figure out, again, like Michael Gale just mentioned on the previous segment, is what can I automate? And what I say is what can be automated will be automated. Be ready for it. And some of these roles haven't even been envisioned yet. So using the analogy, I think Michael mentioned it and Michelle mentioned it too, is factories in the past, or sorry, go, go side, back one more step. In the olden days, it was an agrarian, much more of an agrarian society. And there were something like 10 times the number of farmers than there were in the city. Obviously, that has shifted. So from the agrarian economies to the factories, and there were Luddites that didn't like the, the automation of the looms that made, that made uh, fabrics, but that, that kind of stuff changed and for the better. And those, those roles that used to exist didn't exist anymore, but they were typically replaced by something else. And a lot of times replaced in, in to what Michio Kakyu calls the, the three Ds of automation. Those are the dirty, dull, and dangerous roles. So those things are gonna go away. Some of the other jobs that may not have been completely envisioned or at least fleshed out yet are, and I've, I've kind of broken it up into four different groups from pattern recognition, technology, and human elements. On the pattern recognition side, it's everything from those sensors I talked about from robots and roads and, and in the real world. So uh, internet, internet of things, machine and computer vision, machine learning, AI, natural language processing, et cetera what those things can do in the practical world today is help with things like poaching and hunting. And so I'll talk about a couple of really specific examples and then get into the pros and cons. So uh, machine vision or computer vision can monitor forests and can monitor activities in an area that might be currently very active for poaching, whether it's uh, rhinos or elephants or something else, and they can alert the authorities when something is happening. And that that's a way to spread the ability of humans to cover a much broader ground and, and in some senses be a lot safer. Similarly, a same, the same thing can be applied to farming, whether it's traditional horizontal farming where you have horizontal broad fields of acreage into the more uh, new thinking of vertical farming. There's a huge vertical farming operation in New Jersey just across the Hudson River that's farming a lot of, of vegetables that are going into the city, into New York City, with, with, veg, with fresh vegetables that are grown very close by. And, and in a similar sense, cancer screening. So this can be augmenting humans from a what I call a follow the sun workflow, where cancer reviews, as an example, 
were typically done, they might be, they might start in New York and they might shift to the West coast of the U S they might shift to India and they might shift to China and they might shift to Russia. They might shift back to Europe. And then the next day, some, some human might be looking at them with augmented reality and computer vision and, and also with, uh, with uh, uh, AI in general, it can be a lot easier for a follow the patient mentality. And uh, the last thing I'll say about these is similar roles are what I call FOSH jobs. So finance operations, sales, and HR. So how do you manage cryptocurrencies from the finance standpoint, from the operations standpoint, how do you handle things like monitoring systems, buildings, processes, people, for example, guest management at a hotel, including things like uh, problem, potential problem gambling or inappropriate access. You can also add things like aug augmented guidance. So these are jobs that don't necessarily exist today or exist in bits and pieces today. On the sales side, it can be chatbots for service, which again can be voice enabled. And on the H side, HR side, it can be a better employee experience, not just adapted for AI roles, because I mentioned their AI will take jobs, but it will also make jobs, but that's a critical aspect too. So that's kind of a primer on what's happening from both the job perspective and what's happening with AI in business. I'm going to go through the, the really quickly the pros and cons. The pros are AI will en enable people to avoid those 3Ds, those dirty, dull, and dangerous roles. And I'll, I'll put this more in the blog post that follows this. But the bottom line is anything that can be automated will be automated. From the con perspective, PII is still an issue. And then finally, from a return on investment, AI will definitely make it possible for people to focus on things they're interested in. And the reality is people need to be ready to adapt. So, Michelle, that's my AI and business overview. I'm going to hand it back to you. You did a beautiful job, Jeff, and, and I love how your last point was to remind them to be ready to adapt. I think that's the thing that I noticed that most people aren't willing to do. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you're going to talk about in March. What I can say to you now is you need to be asking yourself, or actually you need to be giving yourself permission. So here, here's my call to action for you from today's show. Give yourself permission to be master of what's important to your business and yourself. And I'm going to say as leaders of your business, you really have to focus on that self part. In order for you to be the kind of leader you need to be now, um, you can't just look at processes or look at people. You have to look at yourself. Now, who else would you like to hear from? Make sure you do let us know that. Um, a great reminder I always like to give at the end of the show is our brain download question was designed to be both fun and important. The intention is to remind you to ask yourself, how am I making my choices and my decisions? You know, next week, Jeff and I are going to be discussing the four, you know, the hidden data of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Brilliant work that was created by Scott Galloway, and you guys have had an opportunity to hear him here on Breakthrough Radio before. So make sure you tune in and listen to that happening next week, of course, Monday. Well, you know what? This is Michelle Price here with Breakthrough Radio. And as usual and with cheer, we are delivering you the best business minds each Monday live. We're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where we work with you a business down the street or around the world, telling your dynamic story, attracting your ideal customers. We'll talk with you again next Monday. Thank you.